Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Today's topic is automotive photography, and joining us via Skype from his Los Angeles studio is Nate Hassler, a Los Angeles based photographer and director who happens to specialize in shooting stills and video of cars for magazines and advertising. His clients include Toyota, Honda, Lexus, and Mercedes. Welcome to our show. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure yeah, having pleasure, you. Yeah. So uh, um, I'm going to start right into it. When did you start photographing cars and and specifically, how did you weasel your way into the first car assignment? Were you qualified <laughs> or did you fake it? I mean, how'd you do this? <laughs> well, I did <laughs> fake it at first. We all did. I started off shooting at my dad's photo studio in Portland, Oregon, actually. Um, he was doing a lot of product photography. So I worked there in my early 20s. And I began to shoot cars because I liked cars and I had a modified Honda that I wanted to take pictures of to put online. It was in that weird time before social media was really out, but uh, I didn't have the opportunity to have stuff published right away. I just shot for message forums, basically. And I eventually got a job at a tuner car magazine called Modified, which is now gone unfortunately. But that was my first real publishing uh, was once I had a staff job already. Hmm. So that was kind of crazy. And that seems like a great first step, obviously. Yeah, it was a small magazine, uh, a a staff of only about five people total. So I had a great boss. Hugh and I got along fantastically and he let me do whatever I wanted within their budget, which was next to nothing. Uh, So basically I would shoot and retouch and have to learn how to light stuff pretty much all on my own because we didn't have really the facilities to do it in a more traditional way. It was really learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And we had a studio on site, which was really helpful. So I got a lot of free time to basically just practice in a giant car studio, which is something not a lot of people get. So yeah, that was that's something I want to ask about. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we'll get now, to that. Again, yeah, we'll, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, we'll park that one down a little bit over I, there. Yeah. Can I just ask real quick though? Well, you, your dad was a professional photographer as you grew up, and and did you mm-hmm. were you in the studio a lot with him, or is it something that you didn't really yeah. care about until you were a little older? No, I was a lot. Pretty much as soon as I was old enough to do something that was helpful instead of make his life harder, right. <laughs> I, I would be at the studio 24? in the summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, teenage years. I would run to get coffee and get lunch. Mm-hmm. And I used to do, I would shoot film in high school. I did photo class all four years of high school. They let me do way more than most kids for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, my dad and my mom worked together running their studio for a long time. And they, when they retired is when I decided to move from Portland to L.A. and to pursue my passion of shooting cars instead of shooting product. Because I just thought at that point, well, I should do something that I like yeah. instead of something that I think is safe, right. um, well, which is a hard point. decision. But I was 24, so I didn't have a lot to lose either. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, well, you some, say the word safe, and, and there's a lot of things about shooting cars that are not safe. Uh, well, again, it depends how you mount your camera, whether you're holding it, whether it's mounted. But there, there, there is a lot of things about shooting cars that's different from other photographic endeavors. Um, could you talk about some of these things, the challenges of photographing cars, aside from the fact that they're big? 
<laughs> and moving and moving yeah <laughs> yes. sometimes yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah there you know there's kind of if you shoot racing or motorsports that is not entirely unlike shooting other types of sports in the sense that your subject is constantly moving and it's unpredictable and you can't repeat what just happened um and then there's the other big part of shooting cars where it is a controlled environment uh and a lot of times you're on tripod and you're lighting the car in little pieces here and there and you're waiting for the perfect sunset or whatever that part of it is kind of like landscape um, and product photography morphed together because a car is giant and it has at least five or six different textures on it glass paint rubber plastic and they all light a little differently and they all kind of react differently to different types of you know strobe lighting or however you decide to do it so yeah it's kind of like a giant mirror and, and when you're photographing a car or anything similar to that it's an interesting problem that you have because you're not only lighting the car itself but you're you, and photographing the car but you're also lighting and capturing everything that is being reflected from all of the surfaces on the car so it's got a lot of unique challenges to it. you literally have to sculpt the shape of the car based on what is being reflected and what's not being reflected yeah the reflections and strategically using positive reflections um and killing the ones that look bad that's a huge part of the battle because you don't want to have no reflections all the time because that kind of looks like it's pasted in mm -hmm. but you know it's all subjective too there everyone has their own approach to shooting a car and their own idea of what they think looks good and also you know the client or art directors will dictate that a lot of times as well. Yeah. So, and is, yeah. most of that, is that an in-camera decision usually when you're talking about worrying about those reflections that you don't want, or do you tend to take care of that in the post process? I personally prefer to try to deal with it on set if mm -hmm. we can, right. you know, sometimes you can't. And other times it's a, a, just a little math problem of how long is it going to take to kill this in camera versus in retouching. Gotcha. And sometimes, it, you know, the reality is sometimes it's just way faster to retouch it out than it is to build a whole wall or cover a whole building in <laughs> Dubatine or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if this is, let's say, a, you know, a big job in a, or with, a, with an advertising firm and the client, are they all going to be with you more or less on, on location or on set talking this over? Or are you, once the job is kind of uh, had and you're doing it, are you there the only decision maker on set? It varies, but typically there will be an art director and a creative director um, or maybe just one of the two, depending on the scope and where it is. Sometimes there will be 20 or 25 people with us, but usually... It's not that many. Um, there's usually one or two people from the client, sometimes more. And occasionally we'll have retouchers on set. Mm -hmm. uh, but typically when I'm shooting on location or in studio, I'll have a Digitech and two grip assistants. And then whoever from agency and client is there, you know, that could be two to 10 people. It just depends because everyone kind of has their own precedence of how they like to do that. 
Somebody has to claim responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Somebody has to sign off on it because otherwise it's all yours. Um, what about a, a, a gear? I mean, as my reference point, uh, when I was actively shooting, uh, I did a lot of uh, boats and yachts and stuff. And I once had a project where I had a, we, we basically did a, a boat catalog in the factory itself. We photographed boats from 17 to 38 feet. And uh, we built... Sykes out of out of white seamless that that were on wheels that we could move in and out. But the biggest thing we had to do was to light the boat itself. Um, I rented from Chimera. They had a ten by thirty foot light box that came with its own assistant because <laughs> you, you didn't do this by yourself and we loaded it up with about 30 different heads and about i don't remember i don't remember how many watt seconds of light in that thing do you yeah. have anything of that sort any kind of tools that are very unique to this sort of large product photography yeah so i don't own large lighting like that i rent that sort of stuff because the you know the price to purchase that sort of thing oh, they, is i don't even think Chimera <laughs> doesn't even sell them they only they have t- they had at the time like 10 of them and they only rented them yeah there there are some studios that specialize in cars and boats and like small aircraft um and they have similar sort of deals they have the giant light banks or the thing that i actually like to use is a a giant like 40 by 50 foot canvas covered flat so it's just kind of like a huge piece of foam core if you think about that Mm -hmm. Um, and that floats above the car, and you can adjust it in any way you want. And the the reason I actually prefer that over the light bank is because you can point a strobe at it and use barn doors or some cinefoil or whatever you want to make a certain shape on the flat, which will then in turn reflect on the car. Whereas the light box is a solid. It's a wall like, of light. Box. It's yeah, a giant exactly. wall of light. That's what it is. Yep. Yeah. And that's great. Also, it's it's definitely faster. So sometimes when you have to shoot a ton of stuff in a short amount of time, the light box is definitely easier. Uh, but the using a Psych Studio with a big uh, canvas flat, I kind of prefer that because I'm just used to it. Also, you know, it's you get your own methods and figure out what works for you. And after a while, it's just kind of like clockwork mm-hmm. and it doesn't take too long to figure it out. But at first it was definitely a bit of a learning curve. So, so there are studios that are specifically designed for cars and, and other giant objects like this. And, uh, are they commonplace in LA? I mean, and is LA, yeah, is sure. LA kind of the focal spot for, uh, for this type of work or will you find it in other locations? Yeah. In, in LA, there's, you know, probably five or 10 really well known. And I'm sure there are other smaller mm-hmm. places that are not as known. Yeah, but you've but got yeah. weather and you've got varied scenery. Like you go two hours in any direction, you can get any kind of backdrop and scenery and roads that you want. That's another advantage of being where you are. Yeah, that's a huge part of why there's a lot of car photography yeah. in LA. It's the close proximity to mountains, beach, desert, and a city. You know, those four basic looks are really good for cars mm-hmm. and the studio like i prefer to be on location the studio is a totally different beast than location but there also there happen to be a bunch of car studios here because 
a lot of the main agencies that handle car accounts are here. They're mm-hmm. usually either here or in Detroit, and there's there's a handful in New York and a, a couple kind of spread out in other cities. But for the most part, it's LA and Detroit. Do you have to be comfortable working in studio and on location, or are there photographers that are known just for one or the other? Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely photographers who are more focused on one or the other. I know a couple of people who don't ever shoot in studio mm-hmm. just because it's uh, it takes a lot of time to learn how to do that. Yeah. And that's fine, you know, that it, there's plenty of work to go around. So I don't think anyone needs to try to do everything, you know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be good at something if you do everything, right. Right. you know, mm-hmm. but... Let me ask you the quick question. We were talking about people on, on set. Will the the car, I, I'm assuming there are like car handlers, like there's a team of people that actually bring the car, make sure yes. it's looking in, it's in its best shape. And uh, are, are they a, a serious presence on every set and every location or they just kind of drop the car and, and then have a cup of coffee? I would coffee? imagine you have a, dr- a dedicated driver with each of your mm-hmm. cars, No. Yep. There is a, there are car prep companies. Uh, and again, there are numerous car prep companies around the country, but there is a few here in LA that do a lot of traveling and delivering of cars. And the car prep team will bring the vehicle to set. They'll unload it from the trailer, clean it all off, make sure it's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the cars are like early production models and not everything functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and occasionally you have to take off doors or windows to get a certain angle, uh, stuff like for interior shots. So the car prep guys do all of that. And then there, if you have stunt drivers versus uh, if you're not doing action shots, a lot of times the car prep will just park the car where it needs to be. But if you're doing like running footage, there's usually a specific driver but again, half about half the car prep guys are also precision drivers. So it's just kind of a case-by-case basis on that one. question I have about uh, shooting uh, uh, cars that are underway, um, do yeah. you usually handhold your cameras or are you using uh, uh, bracket, uh, you know, well-stabilized brackets? What, what's your ratio of handheld to mounted cameras? For like rolling shots? Like yeah, for running th- shots, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So again, about half and half there's, you can shoot from a camera car or you can try to rig. And if you rig, usually that's a whole process that takes a lot longer, but you get a different result and it opens up some possibilities that you can't really get by shooting handheld from a camera car. Oh, sure. You can do anything uh, handheld. It's just that you might get yourself killed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I usually use a harness, just like a construction worker harness. Sure. And then, you attach it to a uh, one of those loops that holds the seat belts in the car, so you can kind of lean out and you're held securely that way. What about but, image stabilization? You know, cameras today have uh, most cameras have built-in stabilization. I know back when I was shooting boats, it was it was film, and I used yeah. to just uh, attach stabilizers to the bottom of the camera. These big monster yeah. units. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you still have um, to rely on those, or is in-camera stabilization to a point where you could actually get away with this? Typically, the in-camera stabilization is going to be good up until about a 30th of a second or so. And if you decide that you want to try to drag the shutter longer than that, you can use a uh, one of those kind of blimp-shaped stabilizers that yeah. you attach to the camera. Some people, I think, will shoot with 
something more like a Ronin, but I think that would be hard to control for stills because I like to be able to look and actually quickly adjust the angle instead of having to do it with controls like on a joystick. Um, but I usually just do it handheld for car to car and with, with a rig where it's like an arm coming out from either the underside of the car or from the top with suction cups. Those are all, you just do brackets and you turn the polarizer and you can light the car. And that's basically the same as if you were just shooting a static, except there's an extra step of moving the car at the end. So the rig shot is a, a beast kind of all of its own, but car to car shooting is a lot of people are doing that um, because it's quick and it has a real natural look. You know, I think there's a push lately towards real, like realism. Um, and not so much the ultra highly lit, like overdone sort of look, um, which is you're mostly something talking about advertising at this point, right? This is all you're, this is referring to advertising, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Editorial car shooting is definitely more open to whatever you want, yeah. typically. Yeah. But with advertising, the look is going to be dictated typically by the art directors and the creative directors. Yeah, they already had 15 layers of people who approved the layout, and you're, they're not going to just say, go take a picture and we'll make it work. That doesn't happen. Yeah, usually not. Sometimes. Sometimes there'll be pickup shots and stuff like that. But the, the major art, there's always a, a, a schedule and a angle that's fairly predetermined mm -hmm. and again some agencies and some clients are extremely strict and others are a little bit more open to interpretation you really just kind of have to read who you're working with and see what they like uh and just adapt on the fly yeah. Yeah, that's good that, that yeah. actually answered the question i had i wanted to kind of get a sense of how much uh how much input you're going to give either on location or, uh, or, or prior in the meetings to say, you know, I think we should do this and that, but I guess it goes job to job. Yeah. It's again, it totally varies. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. people want to hire you for your eye and other times they may look at all your work and say, wow, this is fantastic. And then here's like a strict guideline of what right. to shoot. Right. And this. that's yeah. fine. You know, that's how different strokes for different folks. Sure. Instead of being able to adapt to that, I think is a big part of, you know, you have to be your own public relations agent at all times. And you have to always smile and do your best to make sure that the client and the agency is happy, even if you might not necessarily like every single piece of art direction that mm -hmm. you're given. And and you work through an agency or a rep representative. Do they, do your jobs mostly come through the, the one agency goes to your agent and ask for you or, or, or then they suggest yeah. you, or do you often make the deals yourself? I have a, I have a rep that I work with and I would say it's about half and half. Mm -hmm. I have some house accounts and my rep also provides a good amount of work and we, we have a good relationship Finding a good rep is really not as simple as it sounds, and mm -hmm. not everyone has a good relationship with their rep. And again, every rep kind it's of a marriage. Does. It's a marriage. Yeah. It's a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, I don't say that joke. It, it it is it is a marriage. Yeah, and it's always a learning process. Um, we've edited my portfolio heavily and changed a lot, and you know we'll do it again in an attempt to see well this worked here, but it didn't work there. So let's let's try to appeal to this sort of vibe for this person or it's a real complex beast. Uh, but having a rep that you get along with and, and having a rep who understands what your goals are 
that is the big important part and making sure that they're communicating and that, that you guys together are happy and neither party feels like it's not working because it, it's not always peaches and cream with reps, but I, I'm fortunate to have a great rep and we are doing a really good job together. Do you have a set portfolio for car when you go out on a, a, a you know, trying to, to a client, a potential client, and uh, when you put together a portfolio? Do you have variations of a portfolios for cars? I mean, obviously, if they have a specific shot that they say, we want to do a shot on a curving road in a desert, obviously, you're going to give them, you know, 20 pictures of cars on curving roads and deserts. But if you're just being called in for, you know, we, you know, we have an automotive client, we want to see what you do, is there a set book that just gives a balance of of what you're doing indoors, outdoors, and details? Yeah, I do have a, a portfolio that I change. Every couple of months, I might change out a few images here and there or add new projects. But generally, it stays the same and just slowly adapts over time. And like you said, if there's a specific bid that I'm doing, I have a whole bank of other images that I can make a PDF, uh, like a treatment with various other stuff. But yeah, when I go to meetings or when my rep goes to meetings, if I can't go, I have the same portfolio for each one. Um, I don't have a separate studio or location book. I just prefer personally to have it all in one book. Mm -hmm. But again, that's kind of a subjective thing. And when you say you book, know? do you still have a, a book? or is it, Yeah, uh, I do. Okay. okay. Cool. Yeah, I do. And we, we also show video on iPad. Mm -hmm. And if there's brand new stuff that hasn't had the chance to be printed yet, I can show that on an iPad. Um, I actually, a lot of people really like to be able to touch paper, mm -hmm. you know, I've been reading that, that, that hard print portfolios still have a tremendous value. Yeah, I've heard that a I few times lately. Yeah. Cool. I think they really do. And it, it's a little cumbersome and all that, but it's it's the price of doing business. They you also know, you make get, you stop and you know, slow down. You could flip through an iPad or a phone very quickly when you're holding a portfolio in front of you. You you pause more, you look more, and I think you ask more questions. Yeah, and the the value of a, a tactile, mm -hmm. like high quality paper, people like that. And then you just kind of get into talking with the people about other stuff. And most of these people that you're trying to work with are going to typically have good taste in things in general. So if you present a nice book with good paper, they'll notice that right away. And that also says something about your brand. Yeah, exactly. It's the same reason why you want to dress nice. Uh, you know, you don't need to wear a suit, but like don't look like a total burnout either. Maybe find a happy medium. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Since I was yeah. <laughs> We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We were talking a little bit earlier about gear, and we didn't ask you your your cameras and uh, if you can tell us what you use. And, oh, and do, yeah. you, do you uh, do you vary it based on location uh, or studio and uh, or the type of job you're mm -hmm. doing? Yeah, yeah. There are definitely different tools for different uses. My typical go-to camera that I love at the moment is the Nikon D850. It's great for studio, and actually it's also really good for shooting racing. Mm -hmm. It's got a really good uh, high burst rate and a really good AF system. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times 
we'll end up using um, a phase or a Hasselblad for when you need really high resolution. Right. But the flip even side of those cameras, location, even not. on a location job, you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. It, it's just a based on how big the files need to be in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that will be dictated by each client and each agency. Some people say 45 megapixels is enough. Other people want 100. Right. Um, and but you the, know those... Uh, are the agents and the people you're dealing with, the creatives, kind of savvy about that? They're going to say, you know, we need we need this or they're... Because often I find with yeah. some of the clients I have, it's not the same business, of course, but they, they couldn't tell the difference if they tried, you know. All the agency people have protocols and they are very knowledgeable about how big the files need to be and what their particular requirements are. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with editorial, it's different. And sometimes if you're shooting for social media only, or if you're doing a project where it's run and gun sort of style, they, you know, they know that the price of a medium format camera is not going to work. So, and again, it's, it, unless you're shooting something really large format, a lot of time you don't really need that much uh, data. Right. right. So, and do you, do you charge? Do you include like a rental fee when you charge? Let's say, do you rent? Let's say the large, the medium format. If you go to Hasselblad or Phase, or is that something you own already? And and if so, do you then adjust the fee accordingly, like some photographers do? Yeah, no, I don't own a medium format digital system. I have a RZ67 that I shoot film on for fun and for portfolio. But whenever I rent for jobs, I always build a rental. Yeah. And even with my own equipment, I usually bill a a rental fee for that. Uh, But again, that just depends. Sometimes you can get a decent budget, and other times you have to be real tight and make decision of like, do I want to, how badly do I want to do this job versus how much am I going to take home? Gotcha. What about focal ranges, uh, focal lengths? uh, What do you stick to from, uh, assuming you're not doing a shot that say we want to have a car coming at us, you know, from a quarter of a mile away and you're shooting with a real long telephoto lens for crushing. Mm -hmm. But if you're just doing, you know, side by side, you're pacing with it or whatever, what kind what focal lengths do you stick to? I mean, honestly, I'm using the 24 to 70 28 as my main workhorse lens, mm-hmm. but I'll use primes uh, when when it's not like a time sensitive issue. But you know, if you're doing action shots, a zoom is really really great. That lens is nice, and yeah, you can nitpick about certain qualities around the edges and stuff like that. But I my kit is a 24 to 70, a 70 to 200. And then I have a 35, a 50, a 58, like VFX lens, and an 85. And that pretty much covers it. I've never really felt that I need a longer lens than 200, aside from motorsports, which is the one time where sometimes it's really cool to have a 400 for, yeah, 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 something like that sort of stuff. I shoot motorsports because I love cars and I love racing, uh-huh. but that's not a big source of income for me. That's more like the fun part. Do you have any like do you have any like side side projects that are personal that uh, you know yeah. regarding cars? I guess it, that's totally. what it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love cars and I, I have a couple of project cars, but mm-hmm. like photographing, uh, like photography wise. I shoot a lot of Fuji Instax film. Oh, funny! And I have a camera that's actually a. It's called a Franken Instax. It's a <laughs> it's a Schneider 65 5.6 lens, 
attached to a Fuji camera. Mm-hmm. And it has a, a focusing boss that basically it just turns the camera into a film back and you can have full adjustability of your focus and your exposure through the lens. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it looks hilarious. Everywhere I go with it, people are like, what is that? <laughs> um, That's like I've putting been, a V12 into an old VW. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's because, uh, I, can, I can get shutter drag if I want to pan. Like I shot a whole motorsports event with that camera and I got. I ended up getting a pretty cool two-page spread in the Porsche Club magazine from it, mm-hmm. which was great. <laughs> Those guys are awesome. And I, I was super happy that they saw uh, some interesting potential in my my little instax film because uh, it's definitely not the typical like clean digital files yeah. you know <laughs> do, you, do you ever That's play cool. around with wider angle lenses because that that is a danger it's tricky and dangerous it could work but it could also screw you up thoroughly do you ever play around with uh, ultra wides when shooting cars and, and the reason why I ask is that the very first boat I ever shot, I, 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 I was really feeling creative and I shot all the exteriors with a 20 millimeter lens and a Nikon and the art director looked at the transparencies. These shots are amazing. He says, now get on the phone and call a guy and make another appointment and take pictures tomorrow with a real lens that I could see what the boat looks like. He says, I didn't ask you to interpret it. I asked you to photograph it. And it was a very valid point. It was a great lesson that I learned. Do you have that same kind of thing? Because when, again, you can get some really wonderful angles with wide angle lens with cars and things of that sort. But if you tilt that lens though, the, the wrong way, it just turns bozo. It's a very fine yeah. line. The distortion of the product, right? That, yes. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing yeah. that I hear. And you're right. I typically don't shoot wide for commercial type of stuff unless they really want it because yeah, it, the design of the car will be affected drastically by a wide lens. You know, your wheels that are supposed to be round will start to look like eggs in yep. the corner. Yeah. And the and the, the headlights start jumping out at you and all kinds of yeah, fun stuff, yes. <laughs> yeah, the only, the only time I use a wide, I have a 14 to 24 that I use for interior shots. Yes, Because perfect. the interiors of cars are very cramped, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's kind of... You know, you shoot wide and use lens correction and like keystone corrections to fix all of the little your only alternative is to take the car apart and shoot with a longer lens from a distance and that's not always feasible you can't take <laughs> exactly. them apart too easily yes sometimes that you know they'll have cars that they'll call a buck or a bucket where they can literally yeah. cut the roof apart and take the car apart but to be honest that's not that common it's usually more just like here's a car and then they'll say well here's a rendering of what we want and then Sometimes my job includes saying, well, do you have a Sawzall? Because <laughs> if you don't, we're going to have to change this angle a little bit. Um, <laughs> so are you the director on the set when you have these kind of high-end vehicles and you have a creative on site and you also have people who know the cars and handle them? Or are you often just saying, okay, get it ready the way you want it and then I'll take the pics? Or I'm very hands-on yeah. and not everyone is like that. Some... Um, some photographers who have been doing this for 30, 40 years, just to put it in perspective, I was born in 1985. Mm -hmm. So I have not had part of that super high budget, early Mm -hmm. 2000s, late 90s sort of stuff. We live in a different world now and I I can't afford to be a diva. So I am hands-on. I decide how I want to light things, but I worked with whoever is the creative, obviously, because 
it's a, you know, they have their vision and I have mine and we work together to figure it out. And you want them to hire you again. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I don't ever just like throw my camera to an assistant and say, go make it look good. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to cash the check later. Like that's not how I roll. (laughs) No, no. I didn't mean it in terms of that, the, the sense of like, you know, diva necessarily. Well, although I do take your point, uh, but my, it had to be more with the idea that uh, like who makes that final decision on set, you know? Yeah. That the final decision is usually collaborative Mm -hmm. between, the photographer and the creatives. And again, some creatives are more uh, strict with their ideas and some are more interested in seeing how you see it. And again, it's usually you kind of go back and forth and you find something that works in the end. And And do you you find yourself working with the same creatives again over and over or not really the industry bounces you around a lot? There's a lot of people who move between agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty common that someone will work for a couple of years or maybe just a month or two and then move somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I find myself talking to and working with a lot of the same people. Just sometimes it's at a different place. Um, Do you have weather conditions that you prefer, lighting uh, conditions? I know I know sunrise and sunset, whether rather the time leading up to sunrise and the 10, the 40 minutes after sunset are considered optimum because you get those incredible tones and gradations and color and stuff. But do you have any particular uh, uh, lighting conditions that you go, yes, this is what I want, this is what I like? Yeah, totally. I prefer, I love the hours leading up to sunset when uh-huh. the sun's still up. Because I I like backlit photos, and uh, one of the things about metallic paint on a car is that a backlit angle typically looks really awesome. Yeah, and if, when you're lighting from the same side as the camera, it doesn't always look as great. It sometimes can flatten out a lot. So having the sun go down in the background, not not always in your shot, but just kind of like ninety degrees bouncing off the car into your lens, that sort of general light typically looks great. So I love it from three o'clock up until seven at this time of year when the sun's going down. It's, it's just great. You know, I have gotcha. a question. I did want to jump back quickly. But when you were talking about the, the lenses, the, you, you shoot Nikon lenses, correct? Cause you, you generally with yes. your D850. Okay. Yeah. I uh, we also have a uh, Sigma art 35 and 85. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I have this funky 58 millimeter Petzval mm-hmm. lens. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, I bought that as kind of like a way to explore something funky. Yeah. And I really love it. It's super bizarre, but that's exactly what I wanted. Cool. <laughs> so, so getting back to the, the point about the backlight and, and the time of day, do you, have you found, um, that you've kind of incorporated styles from other photo genres into this work. Uh, you know, I guess landscaping an, an obvious example. And yeah, absolutely. I do. I, I take a lot of inspiration from landscape photography and I guess to a lesser extent from fashion. Mm-hmm. I really like to see people do things that are weird and kind of crazy and to take a technique that sounds kind of bad, but to make something interesting out of it. I also, I like that a lot, but landscape photography is where I really look at stuff for a long time. Like I find myself staring at beautiful landscapes and thinking, man, I need to go do some more of this. And is there room for, you know, like focus stacking and and other techniques that you're, you're seeing more in, in landscape work now in this kind of work, or you need to be pretty much straight up? 
Yeah, no, you can. The, with, for example, with focus stacking, when you're shooting a car, a lot of times what you'll do is you'll do exposure brackets and you will turn a circular polarizer to a number of different positions and do brackets for all of that. And then if you're lighting it with strobes or constant lights, you also kind of need to keep the focus in the same place for all that because otherwise your image is going to shift around a little bit. Um, so I, I don't mess with focus stacking, but I have a fairly – like there's a lot of different ways you can do the retouching for a car shot, but the shooting process is fairly similar each time mm-hmm. just from like a – Execution standpoint. What about like one of those shots that you know what, with the, where you, you know the car is blasting by you and and it's stuck in the frame, frozen, and and the background is moving, uh, which seems to be pretty common. Uh, how tough is that to get that? And and how often? How many takes will you do? I'm sure it's different every time, but uh, you need a good stabilizer unit, is what it is. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I know for boats, you could handhold for a second and get a sharp boat when you're blasting along. At high rates of speed, right, right, mm-hmm. yeah. For like, for example, when they're shooting racing, um, like panning is yeah. what you're talking about, right? Right, right. I mean, yeah. Or yeah. pacing with the vehicle. You right. can, there's two ways of doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much of that is just kind of you know your physical skill and, and your experience, and, and how much is it you know luck and lighting and, and everything working out? For if you're doing a tracking shot, like if you're sitting in a camera car and you're shooting a car behind you, that's mm-hmm. more like a numbers game because you're bouncing around and shaking. Yeah. So not not every shot's going to be sharp. That's just... And you're, sh- you're shooting on continuous, right? You're, you're blasting it out? Yeah, I usually shoot burst, you know, and I'll kind of wait for the right moments and shoot like five or ten shots and then wait and then shoot five or ten. But w- if you're standing and shooting a car that's going by you, but you're standing still, that panning is just like practice, you know, that takes time to just get steady. And again, it's also subjective because you might want a bunch of really crazy blur um, or someone else might want like a really tight shot where, it, you know, is sharp front to back. But I kind of like more like weird blurry stuff. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but like when I shoot racing, that's like, that's a big part of it, I think, is being trackside with, you know, a hundred, 200, 300 other photographers thinking like, okay, what are all these guys doing? And if you see like 40 guys who have a 70 to 200 pointed at the same place, doing the same pan every time, maybe you should go 20 feet to the left and yeah, use something a, else sure. mm-hmm. wide and see if you can do something different, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and can we talk a little bit about post-processing and, and mm-hmm. how, I guess I'm thinking more about advertising now. Uh, do you do it yourself and then, and then submit, you know, your final cut and then they'll work on it themselves or do you just pass it right on? How's that work? And, and what are some of the techniques that you tend to use? I do a lot of my own retouching, but, most of the time for commercial jobs, the retouching is given to a retouching house. Mm-hmm. Um, for editorial and like PR stuff, I usually do it myself. And again, I learned my own retouching at the beginning of my career because I had to. Um, I had no ability to pass it on to someone else. So if I wanted it to look cool, I had to do it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I use Capture One as my raw processor. And then in, I use Photoshop to layer and edit all of like 16-bit TIFFs and a ton of masks and 
basically the way I do it is I composite things first and then I remove uh, like dust spots and reflections and I clean up the car and then last I'll do like contrast and color grading. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. that but, way you can go back in steps a little bit if you need to undo something or add something back. Right. Can you clarify a little bit when, when you say the composite stuff, that was uh, something that, yeah. that wasn't quite sure. So when I composite stuff, what I mean is more like different exposures and different lighting angles. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, you know, you'll shoot a car and then put it into a totally different background but for this purpose, what I, when I say compositing, what I really mean is putting together the different pieces of a car to make it look good. Mm-hmm. Because usually it's not a single frame. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's really cool looking right out of like camera. But well, you, you actually mentioned apparent. one thing in particular that you, which I never actually thought of doing, but it makes a lot of sense. And that is that you keep uh, you shoot with your polarizer at different angles because. A, yeah. the car has different it's curved and as you move the polarizer some parts will look better than others and then when you move it a bit it's vice versa so yep. I could see how you would bracket polarization positions and then compose those pieces or rather make composites using the best part of this fender or the roof line or the windows yeah, exactly. and then create the perfect polarized shot out of several I've never yep. thought of that actually yeah, that's a really good way to get rid of reflections and to yeah. reduce glare. Um, a lot of times, windows and like the top of hoods and roofs can just be super bright and reflecting the sky. And just and you really get glare, one, you lose so. something else. And I, I actually never thought yeah, about exactly. that. That makes great sense. Yeah, and the other, you know, a thing that was funny but took me probably too long to figure out was also a sky. When your sky is blue and you are shooting at a fairly wide angle, you turn the polarizer, you get this weird little dark kind of half moon in your sky, and then you turn it a little, and then you have it in a different area. So a lot of times I will take the polarizer out for a little while. I use Lee drop-in filters Mm -hmm. for most of that. So you can just take the polarizer off also, and it's pretty easy, and it doesn't really move anything. Um, And it's usually a good idea to shoot way more brackets than you think you need because if you don't you're going to look at it later and be like oh uh, where's that? I'm missing mm-hmm. this. Yeah, actually, once you go with a lens with a, uh, an angle of view wider than uh, 90 degrees, which is like a 20, 21 millimeter lens, you'll never get an even sky. That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, exactly. And that took me a while to figure that out. And I'm glad I eventually, because I was like, why do I keep getting these weird, dark, like circles in my sky? But yeah, that, that's something that a lot of new shooters don't know. Yeah. And that, I guess, just a little free advice you, out there. Can you talk a little bit about just dealing with like the natural environment if you're out on location? Uh, I'm thinking, you know, cars are going by, there must be dust kicking up all the time. Um, and, and how often do you need to just kind of put a stop on things and, and clean lenses? clean gear or clean the car and whatnot? Yeah, usually, I mean, once you start shooting any particular shot on a tripod, mm-hmm. once you're locked in, I don't like to touch anything or clean it unless, you know, something really dirty happens. <laughs> Typically, yeah. you just kind of roll with it and then clean between shots. But that's that's also because if you go in and you try to clean your lens, it might move right. your camera even just a little bit at 45 megapixels or higher. A tiny movement is a big amount of work to line it all up later. Um, but with as far as 
other people driving by and like that sort of stuff, you can control only so much of that. Yeah. You know, if you're shooting a commercial project where you have proper permitting and security, that's always a lot easier. But a lot of times if I was shooting a magazine story, like I shoot with road and track magazine a lot and I do a couple like tuner magazines still like every now and then. Uh, but those are usually more run and gun. Yeah. And if something happens, like if a bunch of dirt gets on the car, you can say, well, I'm going to go wash the car and come back or you can just run with it. Yeah. Um, and it's usually more like, the natural look is better in the end and it plays with the story. How important is but, it to get like the, the, the logos in the, you know, the, the insignia, what do they call them? Uh, on the, like the, the decal, the front the insignias, insignias yeah. on the car. Yeah. Is that something that yeah, is the badges. The, the badges, badges, yeah. there you go. Yeah. The badges. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the badges are important and sometimes even we'll go to the point of using a white card or a silk just really close to the badge to yeah. make a little plate just for that where yeah. it's super clear. Cause yeah. they're usually Chrome or yeah. partially Chrome right. and Chrome is just, you know, it's literally a mirror. So yeah. you have to put a fake reflection of some sort in it to make it like readable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they like to see their badging cause that's a big part of the branding. Sure. Of course. You know? yeah. Yeah. What, what about drones? Have you worked drones into your workflow at all? Yeah, I love drones. Drones are so much fun. <laughs> they Phantom do things you couldn't do otherwise. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I bought a Phantom 3 because I saw one and a friend of mine let me fly it for like five minutes. And I was like, man, this is awesome. It's like a video game, but like cooler. Uh, and ever since then, I just, <laughs> I've been on it. I love drones. Um, I shoot with a Phantom 4 Pro every now and then. Uh, but to be honest, with the commercial production, I would bring on a drone operator f- if we needed to have something bigger. Yeah, because there are guys who spend their whole, you know, their whole deal is to become super proficient and fast uh, and and efficient. Because you know, I'm not a pro drone pilot, so I'd rather bring on someone to do that for me, and I would work with them to find the right angles. Um, as opposed to trying to fly and shoot all at the same time, I think that's kind of a lot to handle. But for yeah, for for a high end shoot, you want somebody where it's just intuitive. Yeah, they want. Uh, they, yeah, they, the 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 tool has to be transparent to them. Yep. Yeah, because it takes them, uh, you know, way less time to get it set up and in the right place than it does for me. So I like drones a lot. I think they're a great technology mm-hmm. and. They're just a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wanted to return to just a real quick question. And, and again, one of these things that you, there's, it's always different, but on a location job like this, are, are they always one day jobs or will there be a, may, you know, you may have to come back another day if you didn't get it right. And, or do they just no, for the one day and that's it, it? It's not usually a single day. Usually it's multiple days. Okay. Um, if the shot list is not very long, you can, for sure, you can do it in one day, mm-hmm. but usually it's two days, three days. Sometimes and how, be up many to like how many different setups would you do in two, three days? Um, it, to be honest, it can be anywhere from three or five up to like 25 or 30, wow. okay. depending on if you're going to be lighting each one or if you're just using ambient light. Right. right. Um, also, depending on whether there's motion or if the car is static, 
Uh, not to mention if there's talent, like yeah. if there's models. Which is actually getting to me to my my next and maybe last question. I don't know if you have more, Alan, but it, it was going to be dealing with with actors, and because I'm sure mm-hmm. there must be sometimes where you have to have a or a model. I don't know if you call them actors, but you know the talent. Uh, yeah. do, do you have to give direction, and does that yeah. add, add, add a whole other element, or is it kind of easy comparatively? No, totally. To, uh, shooting with talent, like with models, is the fact that there's a car there doesn't really make it any different than if it was just any sort of lifestyle or fashion shoot. You have to be able to interact with your model and get, uh, you know, make them comfortable, have the results that everyone wants come out by, you know, just being able to interact with other humans. Cause a car just does what a car does. Right. It's a machine. It's sitting there. Whereas a, a person is a person. So you have to be able to talk with people and direct them say like this is our shot we want to do this and a lot of times car lifestyle that's like a hot ticket at the moment you know people really like realistic photos and with talent to prove like a human connection mm-hmm. to the product mm-hmm. so and are there certain i mean there, is that kind of a specialized field for certain actors and models where they they turn up in a lot of uh Car ads and car <laughs> commercials, or yeah, not necessarily. I guess yeah. There, you know, there are some models who are more doing high fashion, and others who are more right. commercial. Right. As and, far as their look goes, do, but do that you also cast a, do you cast or that is that is left with the creatives or the agency? Yeah, usually there's like, we'll be involved in that choice a little bit here mm-hmm. and there, but a lot of time the casting is a collaboration between mm-hmm. the art directors and the creative directors mm-hmm. and the photographer as well. And have you ever photographed, uh, let's say, like a famous driver or, you know, I, I don't know the, the, the circuit so much, but, you know, in a case where it was almost a star in the business? Uh, a little, not, to be honest, not really. But yeah. at, at the racetrack, yeah, you can get some candid photos, but I, I haven't done any shoots with uh, like a, a household name yeah. type of uh, you know, famous person. <laughs> right, 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 cool. No, but you can now say that you've been on the B and H photography podcast. I sure can. <laughs> that count. That counts for a lot. I want you to know that. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> what, besides cars, what other, what other stuff do you do? I mean, uh, I I'm a musician also. Oh, okay. I play okay. I play electric guitar. Right. I like Texas blues, so <laughs> I got a big Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton poster on my wall that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right then. And do you uh, shoot music at all? Or I would love to. Yeah. I just am not in that world. Um, and at this point, I'm focusing on car and car lifestyle. That my my commercial approach and again i like to shoot for fun also so that's where i get the fun with the instant film and with the funny lenses and like the weird stuff you know i I feel like it's important to keep photography fun um just because otherwise it's going insane does your dad do your work and and what does he say and is he proud of what you're doing yeah Uh, yeah my dad is great my mom and dad are both still living in portland Mm -hmm. and they they're retired, mm-hmm. but I talk with my dad about photography all the time and he's a super big gearhead and he mm-hmm. loves to see the newest stuff and test out the new lenses and all that. So we geek out pretty hard about all that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, tell them to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Get some geeks here too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So Nate, if you want to add anything we didn't talk about, if there's any like one, there's one question I had, what had to do with like, you know, maybe a piece of gear that, that you use that mm-hmm. would surprise people. Uh, Let me see. So 
as far as gear that might be a little unexpected, the the rig systems that we use are pretty grandiose. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are giant arms that hang off of cars, and those things are pretty cool. There's basically two styles. There's a, one style that attaches to the top of the car with suction cups mm-hmm. and a series of arms. You know, we just use like Manfrotto arms and knuckles and mm-hmm. like Avenger suction cups. Uh, and then I have some carbon fiber poles that extend off the car up to about 20 feet. And then. And, and they remain stable. Yeah. Wow, they, okay. For the most part. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little bit of uh, bouncing going on, and yeah. for sure. You're, re- but, you're shooting with remotes then for that? Or how do you. You know, so the car doesn't have to move very fast. What you do is you shoot with a lo- uh, a long shutter speed of maybe a half second up to about three or four seconds, depending on how much blur you want in the wheels mm-hmm. and on the ground. Okay. And yeah, you just let the car go slow, and I just walk alongside it with a cable release. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, but if it, if there's a reason you can't stand next to it, you can do a wireless release also. Um, but again, it depends on where the car is. And also if the camera is like super high mm-hmm. or something, you can't reach it. You can definitely trigger remotely. And sometimes you even shoot that tethered and just kind of walk your yeah. digi cart alongside. <laughs> as I don't know why that seems kind of funny. <laughs> People, like passerbys always stop and see and they're like, what on earth are you doing? Like, what is going on here? It makes no sense until you see the final photo. And, but. Uh, any, is there any tricks that along the lines of what you're talking about where you're, you're actually moving very slow, but making something look like it's going fast or, or vice versa? Or is that just, yeah, kind of- there with rig shots, it's all just a matter of long shutter drag. Yeah. And, and if you're doing panning is something like if you're shooting racing or if you just want to shoot cars that are driving by on Mulholland or something, you can make a slow car look like it's going real fast if you mess with the shutter. Yeah, so. totally, totally. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. All right. Uh, Nate, if people would like to see more of your work, uh, w- uh, website, Instagram, where should they go to take a peek? My website is natehasslerphoto.com and my Instagram is nate047. Okay. And I would love to have you check it out. <laughs> Sounds like a good offer. We will do so. It's uh, well worth checking out there. Great. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. And Nate. Oh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. It's been great. Okay. If you are not a subscriber to the B&H Photography Podcast, you have no excuses. Come on now. Drop what you're doing and head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Overcast, or Spotify. And you can always find this on the B&H Explorer website, as well as the B&H Photography Podcast Facebook. Facebook group page, which is growing like gangbusters. And remember, if the bouncers stop you at the door, just tell them Al sent you. All is good. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today.